what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Time is money. It's a phrase you have no doubt heard before, and probably a phrase you've accepted as true. And it's certainly true that there are plenty of ways that time and money relate to each other. But a few months ago, I started to wonder, is time really money? And if not, how does that change the way I think about my time and my money? I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. Today begins a series exploring those questions. I'll tackle them from different angles and different aspects of entrepreneurship so that we can make more intentional decisions about how we spend our time and our money. But first, a little context. Remember, time is money is a line from Benjamin Franklin's 1748 essay, Advice to a Young Tradesman. He encourages the reader to consider not only the money they might spend if they take a day off work, but also the money they'd lose for not working. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been running that calculation on repeat since I was, say, 16 years old. At least in the U.S., it seems we're born with this idea already encoded into our brains. Max Weber cites this aphorism repeatedly in his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. He sees it as a sort of semiotic turning point, a shift from the godly ethic of vocation to the secular ethic of capitalism and wealth building. And remember, this phrase dates back to at least 1748. That's 274 years of cultural indoctrination to this idea. Now, if all of that sounds like I'm firmly against considering time as money or money as time, I'm not. But I do think it's an incredibly complicated truism that's worth interrogating instead of merely accepting as immutable. To kick off this deep dive into the question of whether time really is money, I wanted to talk about money and what money actually is, how we think about it, and why the way we think about money matters. I knew the perfect person to have this conversation with, Paco de Leon from the Hell Yeah Group. Paco has a brand new book out called Finance for the People, which is both extremely practical and very thinky, my favorite. So we started this conversation off really simply. What is money? I love sitting around and pontificating at the weirdness and silliness of money. And at its root, at it, on its surface, at the very lowest level of money, is, it is a shared delusion. And I know that sounds maybe a little out of touch with reality or partially unhinged, but when you really think about what money is, It's just something that we all believe is valuable. Okay, this is super important. So I want to pause on this idea of money as a shared delusion for just a bit. Probably 10 or 11 years ago now, I went to a lecture on money and meaning at my alma mater. Yeah, I am that kind of nerd. 
You're such a nerd. That was the first time I was introduced to this idea, this fact, really. Money becomes valuable because you and I, and millions of other people, believe it is valuable. The government incentivizes us to believe that, of course, but ultimately, without the trust of U.S. consumers, the dollar just wouldn't be as valuable. Further, this lecturer explained, money exists to make exchange easier, to make it frictionless. Instead of every trade being a negotiation of how many eggs are equal to a pound of wheat, we can assign a monetary value to each product and then independently decide whether we want to trade our money for the eggs or the wheat or, say, a new iPhone. Now, we're seeing this shared delusion play out in real time right now with cryptocurrency, my current research obsession. What do people believe Bitcoin or Ether is worth? And how does that value fluctuate based on the number of people who believe in its value? How is a quote-unquote currency impacted if few sellers accept it as payment from buyers? Friends, this is a conversation for another day, a day which is coming, but let's get back to Paco. If money is just this shared delusion, then why is it so important to my survival? If you've never sat and thought about that, if you take for granted that money is this very real thing because it has a very real impact on our lives, I think it's hard for folks to confront that because let's say you're unhappy with your job and you go to work every day and you feel like you're sacrificing your time and you're, you're compromising who you are working for this thing money. It's really hard to step back and admit that it's not real, but it's so real. And I think that's what's fascinating to me about money is it's it's nothing and it's everything. And I think once we start to examine what it is at its core, we can start to ask ourselves, if this thing is based on belief, well, how else is the way that I interact with it based on beliefs? And that really explodes your way of thinking about money in both amazing ways and terrifying ways. What we believe about money impacts how we interact with it. It's the reason you and I can make drastically different money decisions, and they're still the right decisions for us. Money isn't an immutable universal truth, but a fluid, relative representation of value which is always individual. What I value is not what you value. What you value is not what I value. What we each value will be decided by our circumstances, values, personal preferences, and priorities. And even within that relativity, there's also the question of how value is related to available resources. For instance, I might understand and appreciate the value of investing in a house in Montana right now, but I don't have the resources to buy a second home in a volatile market. So while I could justify spending the money, I don't have the money to spend. Now, I'll let Paco give you a much better example. The example that I always love to bring up is I was the $1 oyster. And so for some people, the $1 oyster is a deal. They're like, I got 30 bucks or whatever. I'm going to I'm going to eat a bunch of oysters for $1 and this will end well. And for other people, they look at the $1 oyster and they think, uh oh, that's kind of sketchy that that a whole oyster is a dollar. I feel like maybe they're old and I'll get sick. But that's the mentality that I was walking around town offering my services for this $1 oyster style. My $1 oyster metaphor is 
leggings. Yeah, leggings. I see lots of posts on Pinterest and Instagram about how you can find leggings just like Lululemon's on Amazon for 20 bucks. So once, I gave it a try. They were decent leggings, sure, but they've got nothing on Lululemon or Athleta. So yeah, I spend a lot of money, relatively speaking, on leggings and sports bras, but they last me for years, even though I put them through hell. So those $20 leggings might be a great deal for some, but I'll stick with paying extra to make sure I'm getting a better product. I know that might sound like virtue signaling, but honestly, it is just just straight up more practical for me to buy a pair of leggings that last. But what we believe about oysters or leggings isn't the only thing that impacts what we do with money. What we believe about ourselves is also a huge influence. The most painful thing that I've had to, I, this feels like the biggest theme in my life and I'm here to work through it personally. I have this belief that I'm not good enough, that I'm not enough. And I, I can point to where I think I got that. Um, being queer and a woman of color uh, has not been, you know, a, a nice day at the beach on some days. It has been challenging to be marginalized. And I've heard family members talking about so-and-so being gay. And I remember writing that story being like, not okay, okay noted, not okay to be gay. I uh, went to 13 years of Catholic school, which is a privilege, right, to, to, that my parents invested in education, but also a problem because there's this low-grade hum every day uh, in the messaging that you are fundamentally flawed. You, as you are, you're not okay. You're not good. And again, so then growing up, I'm writing down my, you know, I'm writing this, the beliefs in my head saying, all right, kid, you're just, you're messed up. Eventually, over time, that evolves to you're not, you're not good enough you're not enough, you're not worthy, you're not deserving. And that shows up everywhere, everywhere in your relationships, right? It's been hard for me to learn how to have boundaries or to even speak up for myself. And I feel so grateful that my partner, my wife, has no problem speaking up for herself, which is a great example. But she's also very patient with me and is constantly tells me, you, you need to tell me what you're feeling uh, you need to tell me what you think. I, I cannot just sit here and imagine. And so, you know, I get pushed in that way. But the way that it showed up in money is I never negotiated ever. When I when I took on jobs, I just accepted the default and I felt grateful to be included, grateful to be, you know, given what I was given. I, I got what I got and I was thankful for it. And then I went off on my own. And one of the big reasons why I went off on my own is because I thought, well, the world, they don't see my value, but I'm going to go off of my own and I'm going to get value and I'm going to show everybody that I'm worthy when really I needed to show myself, right? And so I'm out there and I'm, and I'm undercharging for bookkeeping services. I'm undercharging for consulting. And uh, eventually I've, I've gone through all sorts of different kind of therapeutic and different processes where I've really just deep dived into who I am and who I was, all the experiences I've had growing up and, and how all of that has written these beliefs 
and how all those beliefs have impacted how I act in the world and what I ask for and how I position myself in my business. This is what we mean when we talk about understanding your money mindset. It's not about charging what you're worth or investing in yourself. It's really a process of unpacking unconscious stories, weighing them against cultural conditioning, and finding ways to resource yourself in order to shift your thinking. That's a big theme of Paco's book, and she weaves this kind of deep reflection in with really, really practical information. That's something you don't find in the vast majority of personal finance books. So I asked her why she wanted to structure the book that way. The quality of your thinking impacts the decisions that you make. And so the way you think about things has a direct impact to how you act in the world and the decisions that you make. So that's why that's one of many reasons why I think thinking about how we think is not only really, really important, but I think the people who are going to force us to think about how we think, they're like the next wave of people to impact culture in a way that's going to shift consciousness for all of us. Thinking about how we think is also a way to solve our personal problems that we're dealing with, like when it comes to finances. I look at decision making from both a very rational perspective, Mm -hmm. but the truth of the matter is we are human beings and we're emotional creatures. And what I've observed is that Oftentimes, people make decisions based on emotion, and then they replay it in their head, and they're like, cool, 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 cool. How can I rationalize this? So a lot of my framework is to say, hey, guys, just feel your damn feelings on the upfront and recognize that you're an emotional creature. Sometimes your feelings are going to get in the way. Feel them and manage them and, and regulate your nervous system. And then we can be thinky about things because we've addressed that. A lot of the observations I've made with the folks that I work with were very curious to me. I saw folks who made enough money, uh, but they didn't save enough or they overspent or they didn't invest. And that was a very common theme. I saw that with people who were not making enough. They were doing things that seemed outside of their best interest. And that was just, I was flabbergasted. I thought, why are these people doing that? They're smart, capable people. Why am I doing it to my damn self? And that's what kind of led me down this road of like, maybe our cognitive biases are at play here or something like that. So I work with a lot of creative professionals and the bias that they have is like, this world is just not for me. Uh, I don't want to corrupt my art. Or if you concern yourself with money, you're somehow compromising yourself as an artist. That one is very pervasive. And then I think society has a couple of other biases that are pretty common. The one, the number one is thou shall never talk about money, right? There's this common belief that it's gauche or it's just, it's gross. Ugh, talking about money is like, ugh, you're so gross. And then the other one that's pretty common is, oh, rich people are evil. That's a good one. That's a really good one. When we start talking about how our beliefs impact the decisions we make with money, we inevitably get to beliefs about the moral quality of money, how money and what we do with it signals whether we're a good person or a bad person, a good citizen or a bad citizen. For instance, prosperity gospel preachers tell you that wealth is a sign of God's favor. Former Labor Secretary Elaine Chow said on Fox Business a few months ago that low-wage workers had a duty to their country to get back to work. 
An op-ed by a tech founder went viral when she suggested that you got to put in your dues to get ahead, including working 12 to 14 hour days, working outside your job description, and devoting yourself to your company. And the vast majority of the political machine in the U.S. has been touting the welfare queen as the ultimate moral villain since Reagan. These messages aren't the whole of the moral lessons we learn about money. They're just the tip of the iceberg. They're signposts of a pervasive, inescapable message about money. Having it is good. And if you don't have it, you better work your ass off for more of it so that you can be good. I think it makes it so that we are overly focused on the wrong thing. We're overly focused on our own personal shortcomings, right? You did this wrong. You are bad. You are not disciplined. But what I really think that we need to focus on when you feel these negative feelings of shame and guilt, you should explore them and understand where they came from. Who taught you that you should be ashamed of this? Like, where did you pick that up? Was it a movie? Was it a song? Was it your grandparents? All of the above. Where do those feelings of guilt come from, right? Often shame and guilt come from our families having an expectation or society having an expectation of, of our behavior. We violate that behavior. We feel badly. So I think what we really need to focus on, the big shift in this industry is how can we help people heal heal these parts of them that are broken. And once we focus on that, then we can come whole and we can help people and we're not judging them, right? If I come whole, if I come knowing that I'm broken and something inside of me needs healing and I work on that healing, then I'm going to come at these questions and concerns and problems that other folks are facing more whole. And that's what I think is really important. Can I just say it's weird to be judging other people about money? It's such a weird vibe. Like that energy to me is always like, you know, some random dude is doing a podcast and he's like judging this woman who needs help. And I'm always like, bro, why are you coming out of it? Why? What's the deal with that energy? Like she needs your help, not your judgment. I think there is a, a huge issue with placing morality on money. And I don't think it belongs there. I think we're all just trying to figure out how to be on this planet. Most of us, the great majority of us want to be good people and do good things. And we want to do the right thing. We don't want to hurt others. And we don't want to kill Mother Earth. But it is hard to navigate being in modern life, right? Navigating capitalism and trying to feel like you are a good person. And we're all on our journey. We all have to make compromises. We all have to realize the ways in which we are going to be negatively impacting others and the planet with our actions. And that's part of the reality. And sometimes you just cannot reconcile that neatly. Nowhere is this more prevalent than in discussion about debt. But as Trump and other billionaires have proved over and over again, debt only seems to be bad when you're the wrong kind of person with that debt on your balance sheet. So I asked Paco, what's the deal with debt? When it comes to debt, it is like fire or red wine, right? There are benefits to fire. It allows us to cook our food. It allows us to cook chicken to the internal temperature of 165 degrees. But it's also, if it's out of control, it, it can burn down your livelihood, right? Your, your, your home. Same thing with red wine. There are so many studies that say one glass of red wine is good for you for a whole bunch of reasons, but like maybe not like oh, two or three bottles, you know, every day for many years. That's when you take the thing that's healthy and uh, it becomes unhealthy, right? 
it's the same thing with debt. We can use debt in a healthy way. And in fact, historically, debt has been the thing that allows our economy to grow. It allows our businesses to grow. It allows folks who do not have access to capital to create wealth, right? Um, Buying a house with a 30-year mortgage or the mortgage tool in general in the United States has been the single greatest thing that has allowed folks across all income sectors, right? Folks who are not making very much all the way up to folks who are making a ton. The, the mortgage has allowed us to build wealth across the board. And that is kind of awesome and maybe a little bit terrifying. Who knows? I mean, our sample size is still quite small. We've, we're only looking at, I don't know, 100 years of data or something like that. So I think just zooming out as much as possible and looking at debt from all these different lenses and perspectives can allow you to piece together something that works for you. You know what I mean? It's, it's less about this one linear path. It's like we, we, we shouldn't look at things with this tunnel vision of just like debt is bad, debt is bad. And yes, it can be bad if you're over levered and you can't afford to pay it back. For sure, it's bad. But it can also be a tool for, for growth and for good. All right. To this point, we've talked about our beliefs about money, how they impact our decisions, and how they influence the way we feel about ourselves and others. Now for the question I started with. Is time money? Yes, no, or it's complicated. I used to believe that time was money. And oftentimes I would look at things that I would buy and I would think, oh man, I'd have to work like 2.5 hours to afford that thing. Is it worth it? And I think when you're first starting out and you're trying to manage your money, that's not a terrible way of thinking about money and time. But when you start to work for yourself, when you become self-employed and you understand, well, the power of leverage, (laughs) this is going to sound wrong. But when you are an employer, you basically exploit other people. They work for you and you make money. And it's crazy. When I realized I could either be on the side where I have to exchange my time for money or could I like jump on that other side and have other people do it for me and then now it's a non-issue. When I saw that opportunity, for sure, I jumped that fence and I took it. I think money buys time. You know, time is the only non-renewable resource. Money is is a renewable resource. We could go we could create a new offering, we could raise our prices. I mean, when you reach a certain level of financial freedom, when you just have a bunch of money sitting in the market and then it just pays you and you do nothing. I mean, there's so many examples where time is not money. So I've had to like my whole life, I feel like I'm having to unlearn what has been taught to me. And one of the things I've had to unlearn, and I know I see I see that you have also had to work through this idea as well, is this whole like gospel of productivity. That was super hard for me to work through. I, I remember feeling kind of like a dirt bag for only working four hours a day. Uh, that was like, I was like, shouldn't I be? Surely I must be do. I must do more. I must toil more. But I also think that what's tangled in that belief too is like, am I doing enough? Am I, en- am I enough? Am I deserving of free time? Am I deserving of the space to just be a human appreciating the sunshine on my face? I want to normalize wanting to chill. I think a lot more folks should 
want to chill because your best work is going to come out in those moments when you're quiet, when you're letting your intuition kind of creep up and, and whisper into your ear, when you figure out who you are, when you slow down, we all need to chill more. Finally, I wanted to find out how Paco works out what is enough for her. Is it a feeling? Is it a number? What factors go into knowing you have or are working toward enough? Sometimes I'm really triggered when I hear other people talking about their enough, because honestly, I feel like the folks that I've seen talking about them being like, this is enough. I run a firm and I make all this money and this is enough. So far, I've only seen like cis gendered straight white dudes talk about it. I'm trying to think maybe am I like, am I being biased here? But no, I haven't really heard of another. I haven't heard of like, you know, uh, a BIPOC person being like, you know what? I finally reached enough. So I think it's tricky. I think that personal finance is a very personal thing. It is definitely a lifestyle thing. I live in Los Angeles. That is, I mean, most major cities are not cheap. I remember right after I got vaccinated and I started going out, I remember going to a a cafe and having not been to a cafe, I ordered a smoothie. And then the man said, $15. And I was like, wow, Los Angeles, I love you, but okay, you're doing me dirty, but okay, cool. Living wage, you know, that's just what it be, what it be. So it is lifestyle. I live in Los Angeles. My wife is an interior designer and she also does events. And so we have to be in a place where that service that she provides, which is a luxury service, uh, she can she can sell it, right? The, the yeah. demand has to be there. So for my lifestyle, I see us always probably living in a major city. Also, the option to retire is cool. That would be cool. Uh, I would love to retire. Also, the option to buy a house would be cool. And I mean, if you are alive and looking at things, you'll know that the the price of houses just keeps going up. And every time I think, oh, we're almost there, it just goes out of reach. So that's kind of something that we're constantly chasing and trying to keep up with. And we want to participate in that. For me, I do have a number. I would. So here's how I think about this. We'll get down to brass tacks. For every $1 million that you have invested, you can reasonably expect to take 4% and you can live on it. So that's $40,000. So if you're spending $40,000 today and you think, okay, for the next, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, $40,000 is all I'm going to need, which maybe for the next few years, that's true. But we understand how inflation works. That might not be true. So that's kind of the baseline operating. If you want to live off of 40 grand a year, you need at least a million dollars. So, you know, my number is in the multiple millions. I am trying to amass multiple millions of dollars of wealth so that I can one day retire or, you know, own a piece of property, probably both of those things, and, you know, not have to eat cat food. The other factor that's really fascinating for same-sex couples is if we ever want to have a child, we would have to acquire one in some fashion. I know that sounds gnarly. I do say it because it gets laughs. I'm I'm, I'm not above getting laughs. It's just not as straightforward for same-sex couples. So, you know, I don't know if we're going to have children, if we had like a giant pile of cash that we could, you know, use to acquire said child. Um, Not like on the black market. I mean, like adoption fees or whatever. There's like science involved that you have to pay doctors and stuff. You know what I mean? 
clearly I've done a lot of research. I would love that option, you know, and I would love to approach that option from a space of freedom, not like, oh, no, this is going to be one of the biggest decisions of my life. Cool. Let's let's let the finances drive. One person's enough. Is, like, let's take the surfer archetype, right? That that person's enough is maybe living in a van half of the year and, and driving up the coast and having access to waves and not spending very much, you know, c- cooking on a little stovetop. Another person's enough is having five kids in a house that can have five kids, having enough to feed them and to maybe even create generational wealth. Everybody's enough is really different. And that's why it's so important to me to, to encourage and inspire people to stop and ponder that. What is enough for you? And when you think you don't have enough, one, is it real? And two, if you feel like you don't have enough and you are working towards having enough, what does that look like? And what is your number? I think the trick there is for a lot of us, that number is going to move. That's the real trick is like when you keep chasing it, is it real or, or are you trying to fill a hole within you? I often feel like I don't have enough. Or, you know, since I have trauma with finances, there'll be moments where I'm like, oh, no, I don't have enough or I'm not reaching my income goal or whatever the story is. And I would say, you know, like 99.9% of the time I'm safe. I have a roof over my head. I have food in my belly. I have cash in the bank. And so when you have that moment, because we all have it where we're like, oh, am I doing enough? Do I have enough? Just stop. And I'm I'm, hopefully you're safe and take a deep breath. And if you are safe, just tell yourself that you're safe right now. And I know it sounds corny and like, no, it's not going to work, Paco. Try it. Just try it. And if it works, go with it. And if it doesn't, well, you, 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 gave, it your, you gave it a good college try and you can find another tool like that. To me, money is freedom and it's power. And it allows me to live a life of dignity. And that's really what I want people like the folks who are so out of touch, I, that's what I'm trying to get. The message I'm trying to get out there is we need a basic income because people just need to live dignified lives. We need health care because people just need to live dignified lives. We need access to education because it's just at the end of the day about dignity. Let's just solve that problem first and then luxury will follow. I've been rolling that idea of dignity around in my mind since I talked to Paco. Who is denied dignity? What are the mechanisms that enforce that denial? And what does a dignified life look like and how much does it cost? Paco does a great job of addressing the things we can control about money. And she also does a great job acknowledging that there is much that's out of our control. And this is certainly true when it comes to dignity. There's a lot we can do for ourselves to ensure a dignified life. But for many of us, there are factors out of our control that make it incredibly difficult. So what policy changes could we advocate for so that all people could have access to a dignified life? What community care projects could help more people live with dignity? We all have room to work on our beliefs about money and Many of us have enough room to start changing the larger conversation, too. Grab a copy of Paco de Leon's new book, Finance for the People, at bookshop.org, your local bookstore, or wherever you buy books. Find out more about Paco and sign up for her 
excellent weekly newsletter, The Nerd Letter, at thehellyeahgroup.com. Next week, I'm talking about the egg beater effect and how the way we spend money changes our expectations of the way we spend our time. If you're regularly feeling squeezed by everything on your business to-do list, this one's for you. I'm sending out each What Works podcast episode in essay form right now, every Thursday in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Plus, I include what I'm reading and listening to as I navigate the 21st century economy. To get it free of charge, go to explorewhatworks.com and sign up. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kildoff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. 